Hello. Hi. Uh, welcome Hi. back. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everyone. This is the Weirdest Thing Podcast. My name is Amelia Ampuero. I am your host, Scotty Milder, one of your hosts. Yeah. I mean, that I guess it was awkward. sort of implied. We kind of, that, that was weird. Okay. <laughs> it's because I, t- I took it from you. Well, you did. All right. <laughs> Anyways, hi. This is the Weirdest Thing podcast. Uh, Scotty and I, this is our podcast where we tell you about weird stuff, yeah. weird and interesting facts. And we're starting with the new format today. Yeah. So, yeah. So we're moving into the one story a piece, one story an episode. Mm-hmm. And it starts with me. Yeah. So, and just, again, just, I think people are mostly on board. I've talked to a few people about this. Mm-hmm. People seem to be like kind of on board with, with this plan, but the whole cool. idea is like, give us a little bit more time to like get a little bit deeper into the stories, but also just like deeper into the conversations. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And just like give us a little bit more breathing room with the episodes. So. Yep. Yep. Here we go. So yeah, you're starting it off this time. I'm so. starting it off. And Here this is a this is a story that <laughs> I'm I'm actually making good on a thing when I was like, I'll do that story later on. And then I never do those stories, but I'm making mm-hmm. good on it. And uh, I mentioned it during the uh history of cocktails episode. Oh, cool. Uh so today I'm gonna talk to you about where tiki culture comes from. Oh yeah. Okay. Yes. So sources for this are Wikipedia, Smithsonian Magazine, several articles from the New York Times, several articles from Food and Wine Magazine, several articles from Eater, NPR, and Food Republic. All right. Um, So this is a good old fashioned like wormhole. It was interesting as I was going through this, there was a lot of things where I was like, oh, no, don't get like, don't fall down. And I was like, oh, I actually can kind of fall into this rabbit hole. Yeah. That's what we're doing. Yeah. So let's get cracking. Okay. So- Let's start with like this idea of tiki. Tiki mm-hmm. is the first human in Maori mythology. Uh, is also the word for the little like the wooden carved images of him. So yeah, like kind of a big deal, like equivalent to Adam in, uh, I guess like Judeo Christian. <laughs> right, and and Maori that's from, that's New Zealand, correct. Okay, so hold on. I'm going to get into that, too. Okay. So Tiki culture is an American-originated art, music, and entertainment movement that is inspired, (laughs) heavy Uh air quotes around inspired, inspired by Polynesian, Melanesian, and Micronesian cultures. It takes bits of all of those cultures plus the Caribbean islands, Mm. um, despite spanning over 10,000 miles and including many (laughs) different unrelated cultures, religions, and languages, Tiki aesthetic is considered to be amalgamated into one quote fantasia of trans-pacific cultures it's also got a heavy dose of colonial nostalgia uh mm. in that way it is not unlike orientalism yeah I was which i've also say, talked about in this podcast yeah because caribbean doesn't seem like yeah caribbean has nothing to do with it right. <laughs> <laughs> i mean like like geographically culturally it's just like oh islands yeah oceans moosh yes right <laughs> uh, tiki culture was inspired by the sentimental appeal of an idealized South Pacific, 
particularly Polynesia, as viewed through the experiences of tourists, Hollywood movies. We're also going to get into it, but like World War II soldiers. Mm. Uh, and it incorporates more cultural elements and imagined aspects of other regions such as Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. The decor and the ambiance draws largely from Polynesian influences, while the cocktails are really based on tropical drinks and Caribbean ingredients. Oh, uh, okay. Yes. So to answer your question, a very brief overview of Polynesians. This Mm -hmm. is a thing that like when you go to Wikipedia and you're like Polynesia, it starts getting into like (laughs) (laughs) all of this stuff. So this is very, very much in a nutshell, Cliff's Notes version of this. But Polynesians are an ethno-linguistic group of closely related ethnic groups native to the islands in the Polynesian Triangle. Today, the indigenous Maori people of New Zealand constitute the largest Polynesian population, followed by Samoans, Native Hawaiians, Tahitians, Tongans, and Cook Islands Maori. Mm. As of 2012, there are an estimated 2 million ethnic Polynesians worldwide, most of whom live in independent Polynesian nation states like Samoa, Niue, Cook Islands, Tonga, Tuvalu, or form minorities in countries like Australia, Chile. Chile comes into this with Easter Island. Um, mm, yeah. New, Ze- yeah, New Zealand, uh, French Polynesia, Wallace and Futuna, Hawaii, American Samoa, and the Pitcairn Islands, which is a British mm-hmm. territory. Right. Very interesting fact. Polynesians are excellent navigators. Their canoes reached the most remote corners of the Pacific Ocean, which is how they were able to settle Hawaii, Easter Island, and New Zealand. So mm. it's an interesting idea, right? Because native Hawaiians, but if you go back, they weren't native to Hawaii. They settled in Hawaii. Right. Yeah. Just Fascinating stuff. At any rate, they got in their canoes and they were like, (laughs) let's fucking check out the like far corners of the Pacific Ocean. And they were able to do this using ancient navigation skills of reading stars, tracking currents, clouds and bird movements. Yeah. I mean, when you like look at the Pacific Ocean Mm -hmm. and you're like these people left here. And in a fucking canoe, we're like, yeah, just, like thousands of I'm thinking miles. Of like, I don't know, what was it? The Essex it was like the whaling ship that like yeah. got sunk. And then they like ended up on a raft and all ended up eating each other. Like, yeah. you know, and then like, here's a bunch of people in a canoe and they're like, let's just like found a civilization and, yeah. like, on an island. It's like, yeah. Yeah. And also like very interesting, like it's interesting to think about land masses that didn't have people on them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So that when you went, you were like, oh, we found this island. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Let's hang out here. And there, there were like, no, we're not taking it from anybody because there's nobody here. Yeah. Like, that's just weird I mean, to think about. Still a few of those, but they're all in like the Arctic and stuff. Like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so that's your very brief overview about like what exactly Polynesia is. Right. Um, so we got to talk a little bit about prohibition. 
mm-hmm. and its aftermath. I talked about about prohibition in the uh, Judgment of Paris story, right? But here's a refresher. So, from January seventeenth, nineteen twenty, until December fifth, nineteen thirty three, prohibition prohibited the production, importation, transportation, and sale of alcoholic beverages. Again, the movement was led by Pietistic Protestants, and it was a battle for public morals and health. Mm-hmm. Supporters of prohibition were progressives in the prohibition democratic and republican parties mm-hmm. opposition came from the beer industry clearly sure. yeah. uh wealthy catholics and german <laughs> lutheran communities yeah they were like don't take out don't take a yeah us. we have no interest in this that doesn't sound fun look you got the thumbs up again and, and, like literally i shrugged my shoulders <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Okay. So Americans who wanted to continue drinking either found loopholes in prohibition laws or they used illegal methods to obtain alcohol, which of course led to black markets and mm-hmm. mob business. Mm-hmm. It is unclear whether or not prohibition had any long-term effect on alcohol consumption rates, but it is known that things like liver cirrhosis, alcoholic psychosis, and infant mortality all dropped during prohibition. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I think I talked about this either in the cocktail or in the judgment of prayer. It's like prohibition was a failure, but- we did see some stuff that it was like, well, well it's like people are it, drinking a lot. <laughs> I mean, it's like anything. There's a cost benefit. You know, it's like, well, I mean, there are some public health goods that come from like last people are drinking. But then it's like, yeah. And then you have people getting gunned down in the streets. And we started an entire like organized crime industry. So, it's right. Like, you know, maybe, you know, the the got the cost benefit didn't work out. Yeah. Another thing, and like, this is the stuff that I'm really interested in, right? Are these like, like cultural domino events, right? Mm -hmm. So we have prohibition and they're like, no more liquor. At the time that prohibition went into place, alcohol was the fifth largest industry in the United States. And there is Mm -hmm. absolutely no way to get rid of an industry that is that big and to not have it have a negative economic effect on the country. Oh, yeah. So you've got tons of people out of jobs. And additionally, you see a drop in government tax revenues right as we're gearing up to go into the Great Depression. Right. So like bad timing, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> like. <laughs> so again, like I talked about in my cocktail history story, alcohol did not cease to exist during prohibition. People just started making really shitty alcohol mm. or they smuggled it. Right. So prohibition made it illegal also the rich to people also still. I'm going to get, yeah, I'm going to get to that yeah. too. Yeah. Um, so prohibition makes it illegal to buy or sell alcohol. It doesn't technically make it illegal to drink it. Right. So in the days leading up to January 17th, 20 or 1920, the wealthy went about buying as much alcohol as they could get their hands on because they had mm-hmm. the money to buy it and they had the space to store it. Mm-hmm. Everybody else was just, Kind of shit out of luck, I guess. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, there were above board loopholes for you to get alcohol. A doctor could prescribe medicinal whiskey, um, right. the sacramental wine at Catholic Mass, that kind of stuff mm-hmm. stuck around. Which is also just interesting to think about. Like, I'm think like I'm thinking of the sacramental wine thing, right? And I'm thinking that Catholics at the time were probably like, you cannot infringe on my right to practice 
my religion in the way that we practice it Mm -hmm. and thinking about like, would that have gone over now? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Or would people be like, nope, sorry, we do get to. Well, what's interesting is like you have, because at the time, like the anti-Catholic sentiment in the country was like pretty intense. And like you said, so much of prohibition was driven by the Protestants Mm -hmm. that like a lot of what they were doing was going after the Catholics because Mm -hmm. they were really like, you know, all these like Irish immigrants who are drunk and all these Italians, these drunken Italians coming Mm -hmm. over, you know? So it's like, that was actually a big part of like the, the subtext of that was driving prohibition. Mm. Yeah. This is also where it comes into, uh, I talked about this in the judgment of Paris, but it was, uh, opponents of it were like this, these are rural. This is like a group of people trying to force rural values on urban cities um and that's the thing that i said that it has real like you're just a virgin who can't drive kind of energy about it that it's like well yeah because like a lot of that you know it's like my on my mom's side of the family were you know teetotaling southern baptists and they were like Uh rural oklahoma yeah yeah and like and very english you know they were like british and you know Mm kind of presbyterian scotch irish Irish, right yeah (laughs) and then like the uh you know the catholics were very urban you know. Yeah. Yeah. So here's an interesting like side effect factoid. I don't know um, mm-hmm. about prohibition. What we saw was regional booze smuggling in mm-hmm. the U.S. during prohibition. So that meant that the northern states, they were getting all of the Canadian whiskey. Mm-hmm. The southeast was getting rum from the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. The south south, because they were on the Gulf. They took it upon themselves and they were making moonshine and Mm -hmm. the Southwest was getting tequila from Mexico. Mm -hmm. So like, it's this like interesting, if you sort of like look at even today, what drinks are popular where, Mm -hmm. like a lot of that is influenced by what was available during prohibition. Yeah. That's what was being smuggled in. It's probably why like Appalachia is so associated with moonshine because like they were like they didn't have really any access to anything else probably yeah well, because yeah, they were on the gulf there was nowhere for them to smuggle like yeah <laughs> you know what i mean like yeah. well they're up in the hills you know like yeah uh, yeah they were just like no we're fine we're yeah. good <laughs> i've had i don't want to say a lot because it is intense but i have had actual moonshine and it is so rough it is so so rough <laughs> i know there's like hipster moonshine and then there's like moonshine (laughs) no and i mean this was moonshine that was like delivered in like an apple crate in mason jars with like yeah it was and this is in virginia Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it was a lot (laughs) okay but all of this to say you're still talking about illegal activity so it's a crapshoot as far as what kind of alcohol you you're gonna get you uh this is from the food and wine art one of the food and wine articles um says quote speakeasy liquor could have been anything from single malt scotch smuggled in by way of nassau to diluted embalming fluid (laughs) (laughs) who knows um The period right before Prohibition, like I talked about in the history of cocktails, uh, was a golden age for cocktails. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of what we now consider to be like classic cocktails came from the late 19th century. But of course, Prohibition led to the collapse of cocktail culture. Mm -hmm. Europe's distilleries and wineries 
they were fine. But we know that the American wine industry almost collapsed. Uh, it almost didn't survive prohibition. And American distilleries that have pre-prohibition roots basically only survived by making medicinal whiskey. American breweries uh-huh. <laughs> that existed pre-prohibition, like there's just a handful of them that exist today. And that's um, like Schlitz, Pabst, Anheuser-Busch, Coors. Mm. And um, another little interesting factoid, Coors survived prohibition by making malted milk, which they then sold to candy companies. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Another interesting thing that I learned is that hard cider was huge in this country. Like it was massive. Women drank it. Men drank it. It was super, super popular in New England because they had a lot of apples and pears and all that That stuff up there. Yeah, but it didn't survive prohibition. Yeah. And if you think about it, Probably, uh, I don't know, like about two decades ago, cider started to come back. But I remember being young. I remember when I started drinking cider and I was like, what is this? Yeah, I've that, never it heard of this. like a real new thing. Yeah. Like, but, but the fact of the matter is, is that hard cider has been around since the time of Julius Caesar. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. No, I thought, that's, I thought this was something that was like invented in the 90s. No, wow. no. It just is like, it just didn't survive prohibition. Oh, wow. And there's all sorts of cool stuff about hard cider. There's like heritage ciders that they make. There's like, you Mm. know, like heritage apples. And again, that's a whole other story that I probably won't tell. But um, (laughs) interesting nonetheless. So once prohibition went through, um, I'm sorry, before prohibition went through, whiskey had been America's favorite spirit. Mm -hmm. Um, The problem is, is that whiskey has to be aged. So when prohibition started... There's like a sneeze in the back of my face. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So once prohibition was repealed, there wasn't enough stock to satisfy demand. And Mm. that is where we really start to see these smuggled alcohols coming into play. Uh, Like I said, Canadian whiskey blew up. Tequila became really popular. And Caribbean rum became a very attractive alternative, especially in New York. However, wealthy Americans that were closer to the Caribbean were able to go straight to the source and savvy alcohol brands started to encourage a kind of booze tourism Mm. so we're going to put a pin in that and come back to it let's talk about rum okay Mm -hmm. again not going to go super deep into it because rum like actually dates all the way back to alexander the great Mm -hmm. but here's what you need to know in a nutshell rum is a liquor made by fermenting and distilling sugarcane molasses or juice it is aged in oak barrels Mm -hmm. it um Persians and Arabs created and perfected sugar refining in the 7th centuries, and by the 11th and 12th centuries, they were introducing sugar to the Mediterranean region of Europe. Sugar is a slave business. Mm -hmm. Everywhere that sugar existed in the world, it was planted, fertilized, cut, transported, crushed, and extracted by enslaved people. From Food & Wine magazine, quote, molasses could be sold and used as a sweetener, but the fermented molasses was enjoyed by slaves and poor white people. At some point, somebody distilled this fermented molasses and rum was born. Mm. Rum was huge in colonial America, Mm -hmm. like massive. George Washington gave out like 
gallons upon gallons of rum and rum punch when he was running for the Virginia House of Burgesses in 1758. <laughs> he had it at his inauguration. It was more available than whiskey in big cities like Boston, like mm. over the place. Uh, this stereotype is true. Sailors loved rum. And it mm-hmm. was touted as, quote, the best and quickest restorative which a sailor can have at sea. That is a quote from Dr. James Lind in his 1762 essay on the most effectual means of preserving the health of seamen in the Royal Navy. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> yes. Is he it because also... it's like so associated with islands is because of the sugar cane and stuff? What do you what do you mean? Was well, that why I just like why is rum so associated with sailors? Is it like so here's the thing is that Dr. Lind included a recipe for rum punch in this mm-hmm. essay, and it has fruit juice, vinegar-based shrubs, vegetable acid, and a lot of other stuff. It probably kept them from getting scurvy. Oh, yeah, yeah, which means yeah. I should probably drink it because I probably have scurvy. Maybe a little bit. Yeah. You're going to get rickets. You're going to get scurvy. <laughs> there you go. Okay. So let's come back to that booze tourism. I almost said booze terrorism. <laughs> <laughs> and we found our title for the episode. <laughs> booze terrorism. Okay. Booze tourism. Um, okay. So rum is being produced all throughout the Caribbean and prohibition saw, like I said, a lot of rich Americans heading to Cuba and other tropical destinations in the Caribbean for rum-based cocktails. Bacardi, Mm. which originated in Cuba before being exiled to Puerto Rico by Castro, was like, oh, we can make a lot of money from Mm. this. And they created these like travel postcards to sell Cuba as a tropical paradise of rum. Hmm. They even went so far as to send, again, this is the company Bacardi, they went so far as to send bartender Papi Valiente to the airport to greet American booze tourists with a daiquiri. Hmm. Yeah, so they were just like, come on in. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If you are interested in learning more about Bacardi's vast history, they are a family that was in Cuba from Cuba's fight for independence from Spain up until Castro through the mountain in the 1960s. Uh, You can check out the book Bacardi and the Long Fight for Cuba by Tom Gelton. It's J-G-E-L-T-E-N. Yeah, it's a very, uh, very cool book about what happened to the Bacardi family. Um, And also just a fun fact, I have seen the original Bacardi building in Havana. Oh. It's got like the bit, you know, the big like bat symbol that is on the Bacardi. Right. Yep. It's got yeah. like a big one of those on the top of the building. And it's like this gorgeous art deco building. Oh, cool. Booze tourism. All this is happening. Everybody in the Caribbean is like, oh my God, we can make all of this money from these people. Yeah. And they collectively accelerated the production of rum. Once prohibition was over, that rum was still there and it sat around aging beautifully until Mm -hmm. it was needed specifically in rum centric tiki bars Mm. okay so to clarify there is a difference technically between tiki and tropical this is from one of the eater articles quote Tiki drinks refer to the rum rhapsodies, rum spelled R-H-U-M, 
to the rum rhapsodies of Don the Beachcomber, Trader Vicks, and their descendants, says Rafa Garcias Febles, a Puerto Rican-born, New York-based bartender. And historically, they were made by U.S. Americans or their immigrant bartenders to sell a made-up version of Polynesia, the Caribbean, and the tropics to other Americans. Tropical is a looser genre defined largely by drinks that were developed in the tropics. So this is like mojitos and daiquiris in Cuba, mm-hmm. pina coladas in Puerto Rico, and which are stylistically different from tiki. While a tiki drink can be composed of up to 10 different ingredients and generally requires sweet, sour, spiced, and strong components, tropical drinks are generally constructed a la minute with fresh ingredients that primarily balance acid sugar and alcohol Mm, so it's like a fine line of distinction but there is a distinction that like mixologists understand okay so we're going to talk about our first guy here ernest raymond gant he's born we think february 22nd 1907 in we believe new orleans and was maybe raised in limestone county texas okay (laughs) according to gant he spent his formative years up till the age of 16 running boarding houses with his mother before leaving to travel the world for four years in 1929 he left texas to work on a yacht headed to australia by way of hawaii and then spent another year island hopping throughout the south pacific the reason why this is all like maybe alleged Allegedly, possibly, is because this guy loved a good story. Yeah. So all of it could be true. None of it could be true. Parts of it could be true. Tall tailing all over the world. Yes. So 1933 rolls around. And if you'll remember earlier, I said that prohibition lasted until December 5th, 1933. Like, Mm -hmm. I feel, I think, like, the second it ended, Gant opened a bar in Hollywood called Don's Beachcomber. <laughs> it's the original stood at 1722 North McCadden place. It was immediately popular, right? Mm. And Gant soon started calling himself Don the Beachcomber and he would actually eventually legally change his name to Don Beach. Mm. In 1934, he moved the bar across the street, he expanded into a restaurant and he changed the name to Don the Beachcomber. Mm -hmm. Uh, the place was known for its strong rum cocktails, which I'm not going to refer to him as Gant anymore. I'm just going to call him Don, uh, which Don called these rum rhapsodies. Mm -hmm. He is responsible for drinks like the Sumatra Kula and the zombie. Mm -hmm. Legend has it that Don concocted the zombie to help a hungover customer get through a business meeting. Customer then returned days later to complain that he'd been turned into a zombie for his entire trip. (laughs) Which is very Haitian, like Caribbean. Yeah, Yeah, the zombie has at least three different types of rum in it. And the alcohol content is so high that the Don the Beachcomber restaurants had a two zombie limit. Oh. Yeah, like they were like, you can't, you got two and then that's it. Otherwise you will die. Yeah. Other drinks that Don invented include the Cobra's Fang, Tahitian Rum Punch, Three Dots and a Dash. That is the Morse code symbol for V, V for victory, Mm. uh, the Navy Grog and more. His menus had up to 60 different kinds of cocktails. Wow. Most of them made with all of that rum that was floating around. Mm -hmm. So 
Post-prohibition laws stated that if you were going to serve alcohol, you had to serve food. So Don created this menu of like what appeared to be these really exotic dishes, but in reality were just kind of classic Americanized Cantonese dishes served with like flair. Okay. It is likely that the first poo-poo platter was served at Don's as well as the first rumaki. I, this makes me so basic. I fucking love a poo-poo platter. I don't even know what a poo-poo platter is, so that, I'm even uh, more basic than you. <laughs> uh, okay. A poo-poo platter is uh, usually it's stated as either dinner for two or appetizers for four, and mm-hmm. it's basically an appetizer sampler, but it is... So um, it comes out and you get like crab rangoon, uh, the little like, uh, what are they? Are they like, I think they're like Korean fried chicken wings, your little like Mm -hmm. barbecue spare ribs. There's usually some type of like beef or chicken skewer on there. Maybe some like spring rolls or egg rolls. It's just a... It's a, it's, it's a sampler. It's like a smorgasbord. Yes. But the thing is, is that it comes out in this dish that usually has like a torch thing at the oh, top. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've, I've seen it across the restaurant. Yes. Like, I, I love a poo-poo platter so much. It looks so like you much. want one right now. They're so good. The, uh, God, there was a restaurant. One of the restaurants that I used to get them at here when I was little had this like paper wrapped chicken. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. It was so good. Um <laughs> Yeah, the poopoo platter probably originated uh, at at Don's as well as the first rumaki. Uh, rumaki is a like appetizer that was very big in the 1950s, and from what I understand, it is a chicken liver and a slice of water chestnut wrapped in bacon. Oh, that sounds good. A little crunch from the water chestnut. Mm, I would go right for that. Fantastic. So Don's place was decorated with like this tropical island motif. There was bamboo. There was like flower lays, flaming torches, rattan furniture. You you get the vibe. His early motto was, if you can't get to paradise, I'll bring it to you. And uh, fans, I'm sorry, stars like Marlene Dietrich, Bing Crosby, Clark Gable, and Vivian Lee were all big fans of Don the Beachcombers. Okay. Don is credited with basically inventing tiki culture. Yeah. Okay. Now, in 1936, a restaurant owner from Oakland by the name of Victor Bergeron ate at Don the Beachcombers. Victor would later say, quote, when I got back to Oakland, I told my wife what I had seen and we agreed to change the name of our restaurant and our decor. The restaurant's new name, as well as Bergeron's new persona, was Trader Vicks. Mm, yeah, I've heard of that. That's yes. Um, just again, to give you a clue as to like what type of guys these were, Vic had a wooden leg and <laughs> he would frequently tell people at Trader Vicks about how he lost the leg in a shark attack. <laughs> the reality was that he lost the leg to tuberculosis. I was going to say, I, like immediately, like if I met any guy named Vic, and he told me that he lost his leg in a shark attack, I would be like, mm. just the fact that his Skeptical. name is Vic, I would be like, I don't think so. <laughs> Whatever. Okay. Aye, aye, Captain. All right. <laughs> aye, aye, Captain. Um, <laughs> there was an article in the New York Times in 1979 that, like, I almost want people to go read it just because it's a little bit of, like, what? <laughs> 
this here are a couple of quotes from Trader Vic in this 1979 mm-hmm. New York Times article. Quote, I got Chinese cooks and got them to cook it my way. I didn't want a fish coming with its eye staring at you or funny cuts of meat. This is adapted to American tastes. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. Here's another one. I'm not anti-French, but they make fun of people. Germans, they want to run everything. <laughs> Like every other line yeah. in mean, this I article, just, I feel like I, I feel like I can picture Vic. Like, oh, I yeah. like I've got like an entire image of Vic in my head. I know yeah. exactly who this guy is. Yeah, like every other line in the article, I was literally being like, "I, you said this out loud to a mm-hmm. reporter from the New York Times." Well, you know, and he's like so proud of himself. Yeah. He's probably on his feet, well, one foot, I guess, propped up on the table. (laughs) How about Uh, that? Vic adamantly claims that he invented the Mai Tai, though, of course, Don also makes the same claim. In case you're wondering, a Mai Tai is rum, curacao, something called orgeat syrup, and lime juice. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is also said that Vic made his very first Mai Tai with 17-year-old rum. Again, remember I said that that rum was like sitting around and aging really beautifully. Right. There we go. There you go. So from here, the U.S. sees more restaurants popping up in this vein. Uh, you've got Clifton's South Seas. Clifton's was like this. Clifton's is an interesting thing and actually is like somewhat worthy of its own story. Mm-hmm. It The original owner was like devoutly Christian, but had this whole thing that like you could come in and they did pay what you wish pricing for their food. Hmm. So like if you were down on your luck, you could come in and be like, what was that worth to you? You pay what you like, you pay what you can for it. So um, not total dates. No, I believe I might be wrong about this, but I believe there was a queer uprising at a Clifton's cafeteria in San Francisco. Don't well, I guess fact check me on that. Um, but so we've yeah. got Clifton South Seas. We've got another place called the Luau. A whole bunch of places start popping mm. up. Um, Hollywood also gets on this whole like South Seas genre kick. That's when we get like the musical of South Pacific. You know, people start mm. doing these movies where they're like in Hawaii. And, you know, there's like Blue Hawaii, the Hawaiian Eye. They start making all these movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've also got travel companies like the Hawaiian Steamship Company's Matson line that were aggressively advertising leisurely expeditions to still exotic locales. So, like, yeah. of course, right? Like, yes, who doesn't want to go to a tropical paradise? But... Why did tiki culture explode when it did? And this is where things get interesting to me. You can draw a direct line from prohibition and the Great Depression to tiki culture. We're talking about a time when many Americans were struggling like with a capital S and the idea of escaping to an island paradise where like the women were half naked and like alcohol flowed Mm. freely like that. That had to be a dream, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, this is from eater quote, people were hungry for a fantasy and what little disposable income they had went to trying to forget all that stuff. All eyes went to the South Pacific perceived as a place of exotic abandon where you didn't have to work for a living. It was the exact opposite of being in a U a U S city in the winter of 1934. 
Like, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it paradise, yeah, right? Sure. Tiki culture was becoming so big that in California's 1939 World's Fair, they celebrated Polynesian culture with a pageant of the Pacific. And at the opening ceremony, FDR spoke about the friendship and the commingled destinies between the U.S. and Pacific countries in 1939. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah. not so fast, <laughs> FDR. Yeah, I was gonna say, hold that thought. <laughs> we'll see how the we'll see. Give it a couple of years. We'll see exactly. How like the interesting thing though is that post World War II, American servicemen returned to the U.S. with these stories and souvenirs from the South Pacific. Don himself fought mm-hmm. in World War II, and that like Mm. legitimized the dream right that him and trader vic were selling this like idyllic fantasy of island Mm. living to be fair i mean i do believe now i'm i'm talking a little bit from like a place of like i think regurgitating things that i have like heard so i i don't i can't cite Mm -hmm. sources but my understanding is that there were post-world war ii the the japanese army was so brutal to like a lot of these you know islands that when they went and took over that actually a lot of these uh places did really see the americans as liberators so the americans were kind of very favorably viewed i think for a long time but i think that kind of ended with a lot of the nuclear That's, testing yeah that ended up happening. <laughs> so it's like uh, mixed yeah i'm gonna talk about there. that in a sec so like and what we have yeah. to be aware of is that there are there's two different views of this, right? There's the American soldiers right. that are coming back who are like, oh my God, and like the beaches and the ocean and the sand, and it was amazing and it was beautiful and all this stuff. And then you also have the people who were there and continue to be there in the post-World War II years. Mm-hmm. So To get back into this, this is from Eater as well, quote, before the war, only the richest Americans could afford to get to the South Pacific if they even had the inclination. Now, all of these guys from Des Moines and Oklahoma City are going to Hawaii to serve in the military, and most of them had good memories of their time in Hawaii. They went to this beautiful paradise that they never would have dreamed of if they had not been drafted. When they got back to the States, they wanted to remember that experience. So you've got these World mm-hmm. War II soldiers with their fond memories of the South Pacific. You've also got a post-war economy that creates disposable income. Mm-hmm. But there's this looming fear of nuclear war and this like stifling mm-hmm. Eisenhower-era conservative morality. So mm-hmm. going to a tiki bar was this kind of like – acceptable form of hedonism yeah it's like you could like dip your you, you can it, but... you can be a tourist you know what i mean right exactly. and then yeah. hawaii becomes a state and all yeah. of a sudden tropical paradise was a domestic flight away it is completely possible that tiki culture would have like maybe just kind of faded away in the 1950s if that hadn't happened But instead, moving into the 1960s, you had shows like Gilligan's Island was the number one show on TV. The Beach Boys had exploded onto the scene and Tiki was becoming this like dominant culture thing that was influencing everything from TV to like home Mm. decor. But what rises must fall. So (laughs) Tiki culture Mm. starts to decline in the 1970s 
funnily enough, because of counterculture, the Woodstock generation saw Tiki as like unbelievably square because their parents liked it. And it represented the ideologies and traditions of their parents. There was a quote that said, the kids didn't drink cocktails after protesting the Vietnam War at a rally. And like I mentioned in the cocktail history story, these kids really wanted to do drugs. They didn't want to drink cocktails. (laughs) Yeah. They might be drinking beer, but they're maybe drinking beer. Yeah. But they're like, yeah, yeah. It's like weed, acid, coke, like let's rock and roll. Yeah. Then you move from that into the 80s and greed becomes the watchword, right? So Mm -hmm. we don't want any of this like kitschy, homey, like quaint. Yeah, it's like tacky. And it's it's like it's moneyed. It's wealth. It's Wall Street, all that stuff, right? And so at this point, we see capitalism turn these like handmade, fresh, juices and stuff that were being used as mixers into like pre-packaged mass-produced sugary neon colored mess <laughs> yeah and tiki basically gets That's... like packed up into a trunk and tucked into a dark corner of cocktail history yeah i just when you talk about the neon colored mess i just i have to think about zodiac with the aqua velvet i actually <laughs> looked it up because i was like what drink is he drinking and it was, and that's like, that's a perfect example. Like Robert Downey Jr. is so like, what are you drinking? And then he's like. Yeah, because he's like so part of the yeah. This is an interesting sort of like, like tangent, right? Like a little cultural antenna. As Tiki declined throughout the 1980s, there were still folks who wanted this like escapism, this like tropical escapism, but they were looking closer to home. And this is where Jimmy Buffett and Margaritaville enter the picture. Mm. So you get this laid back, like beach lifestyle version, but it's really based in the beaches of the Florida Keys rather than some far off place. Yeah, I was going to say, because it's not like people stop going to the beach and stuff. No, but it becomes much more local. It's much, and it's, it's, um, it's not about this like foreign quote exotic culture. It's like, oh, I want to like, you know, I want to, I want to go well, down to the got... Florida Keys and tan. Well, now you know who's like really like taking on the like the the like booze cruise beach vibe kind of thing is like metal dudes because you've got the like the rock cruises, the like metal cruise thing, which is like That's become a thing. You've got like Sammy Hagar with his like tequila bars and stuff, and like which. Yeah. What is it? What is the name of what is the name of his tequila? I can never remember it. It's supposed to be. It's really like Cabo Wabo or something like that. I think so. It's, I think that's it. Yeah, it's pretty good. I'm sorry. I I hate yeah, to be. I've heard it's I like hate to be the person yeah. who says this, but some of the celebrity tequilas are quite good. Clooney's Casa Amigos well, I mean, tequila. I mean, they've got the. Uh, it better be. I get. Yeah, it better fucking good. be good. So Tiki, like I said, it basically disappears from the collective consciousness of America until the mm-hmm. late aughts and a little show called Mad Men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mad Men <laughs> brings all things mid-century modern back into focus you also have 
like at the same time, you have mixologists who are already starting to reexamine classical cocktails, but Mad Men gave the cocktail industry a big boost. Uh, this is also from Eater. That show was a big cultural touchstone and it got people interested in things they'd never heard of or would have been interested in before. So what right. we are seeing now is a kind of cocktail archaeology with bartenders experimenting with vintage recipes, unearthing lost recipes. Here's the thing is that Don the Beachcomber had at the original place had four, I believe, Filipino bartenders and stuff mm. was in like mixing bottles, but it wasn't labeled like rum, lime juice. It was labeled like X, Y, Z. And so it was like mm. four parts of X, three parts of Y, whatever, whatever. And so a lot mm. of these cocktail recipes got lost. Additionally, you have mixologists expanding like the fruit juice roster past the standards of coconut, pineapple, and citrus. We're now moving into guava, passion fruit, all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. Um, there's been a tiki revival in the last 15 years with bars like New Orleans Latitude 29, Houston's Lay Low, Lay Like a Flower Lay, uh, and Jungle mm. Bird in San Juan. Jungle Bird I want to go to Puerto Rico just to go to this bar mm -hmm. because they're really about like honing in on like Puerto Rico's tropical cocktails. It seems mm -hmm. And of course, like all of them look awesome. Uh, there's also Broken Shaker in Miami, which is I'm also fascinated by this because it's referred to as a backyard bar, but it's part of a hotel. So like I don't mm. what, whatever. I'm fascinated. OK, from what I can see, there are two kind of camps when it comes to current tiki bars. There are those that are focused on the, quote, authentically inauthentic Americana of 1950s and 60s tiki restaurants, and those that are attempting to undo the original sin of tiki. So mm -hmm. let's dig into a little bit about, like, what's wrong with tiki culture? Yeah, what's, I mean, I think... The subtext is like there in a lot yeah. of Yeah. But yeah. Um, but we make it a little bit more. Yeah. Text. So yeah. already off the bat, we've got a culture that isn't really rooted in authenticity or facts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, right. add to that the fact that many of these drinks are served in tiki mugs. And tiki mugs are like these kitschy artifacts transformed from religious idols like that's it's not a great start and mm. the way i saw it explained in um yeah. in one of these articles yeah the I way i saw it explained in one of these articles was imagine going into a christian themed bar and you're drinking a drink out of a very like sort of caricatured version of like the virgin mary or like a crucifix and then you start to kind of be like mm -hmm. oh <laughs> like I mean, I would but do you know that. what I mean? It's a little bit of a thing that you're like, uh, <laughs> but I get it, right? Yeah. Huh? And I think when it's put, yeah, I think that for a certain portion of the American public, they can see things like this and be like, "What's wrong with that? Like, what's wrong with that?" We're like enjoying mm -hmm. the culture, and it's like when you put it in that kind of a light of like, would you drink a, would you drink a cocktail out of like a big light up crucifix? Maybe not. Well, look, here's okay. So here's the thing. I just said I would do that, but the thing is, I would do that because, like, 
um i'm a metal dude and like a part of like the metal thing is like throwing a metal figure yeah at religion you know so it's like i'm literally like coming at it from the like yes i'm throwing right. a metal finger at religion i'm not sitting here saying like no i like it's out of appreciation for, yeah like, you and know, I th- like that's a it's like no it, it's like so you can't claim that it's it's like no i'm, I'm appreciating yeah. the no it's 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 you're 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 appropriating and bastardizing this thing that yeah. you really have no right to you know additionally the idea that was sold which was these exotic locations that are like an escape that the inhabitants have no problems because they live in a paradise also comes along with this idea that the natives were sort of like like the native people there were like lusty and rum soaked you know what i mean it's it's uh mm-hmm. it's your basic like colonial nostalgia and if you look at like the menus from uh don the beachcombers trader vicks all that stuff a lot of them have you know it's like a dude and like his little like clam shuckers or whatever like being served a tropical drink by like a brown like a beautiful brown skinned topless woman you know it mm-hmm. it um yeah. it does also play into this idea of like like the exotic savage um even down mm-hmm. to like the names of the drinks you know there was uh like a lot of them were like innuendos there were drinks that had like names like the cannibal and like shrunken heads there was another one that was called the tropical itch which well i mean think about like even just like the hula girl yeah it's as like a sexualized simplified boiled down version of like a very real and robust of several very real and robust cultures this is from the mm-hmm. LA Times, it says, uh, quote, and that's the problem with Tiki, how to honor its real contributions to mixology while resisting the parts that dishonor indigenous people, misuse their iconography and exploit their sacred traditions. Mm-hmm. And when you consider that Americans are buying and selling drinks and food from the South Pacific, heavy air quotes, while also using the Pacific Islands to test nuclear bombs. Like... Mm-hmm. I mean, pretty much like wiped the bikini yeah, islands off the face like of it the does earth. start it like, and like yeah. let me say this none of this is to like i think a lot of time when people start talking about stuff like this there is this argument from the other side that's like oh you like don't want anybody to have any fun and like oh you're a killjoy and all this stuff and like you just want everything to be like bad and boring and like you want to make everybody feel bad about things and it's not about that it's about if you were going to take something that belongs to a culture and profit off of it then you need to like respect the people that it comes from they need to be compensated Compensated. in some way and like it shouldn't be this like like i said this like caricature of what those cultures are it's i mean imagine if we were talking about jack daniels and somewhere in europe was like oh we're gonna open like a jack daniels bar and like the wait staff was like overalls and no shirts (laughs) You know what I mean? Like barefoot and like mm-hmm. dusted and cold. Like it's kind of the thing where it's like, that is such a gross, like <laughs> oversimplification mm-hmm. of the region. Uh, yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like missing yeah. teeth. And like, if they were like, 
that's my sister or whatever you know like it just is you'd be like whoa or like well i'm like you know sexualizing the like you know the like southern bell farm girl with the overall right yeah there's like yeah if you if you if you take I the mean, time to be like what is the like wasp power structure equivalent to that and would i be offended if i walked in and saw that I mean, the thing, it just, it all boils down to the same thing I always say when it comes to this is just like general rule of thumb for life is just like, don't be a dick. And like, if it seems like dickish, but I think that's the problem is is that this is where we get into, again, if you were talking about, if you're talking about people who have been historically centered, which is for the most part Mm -hmm. in our corner of the world, the wasp power structure they can't Mm. see what that's like because that's the thing is that they can't be like what if i walked into a place and i saw my culture being simplified Mm. in this way and like simplified sexualized you know boiled down the because they like they can't imagine what that would look like but that's the problem is that like that's kind of what you have to do to really get into the mindset well, this, of why it's offensive I mean, this, not to like go back to like the zone of interest like harp on that but it's like the same idea of like just like widen your lens a little bit you know just look with like a slightly wider yeah lens. i think the problem like, with that is but it's like a lot of people the, yeah. can't do like a lot of people that's just the, don't that's have the problem is that it. when you have grown up being when when not just when you've grown up when you come from a society that has centered your point of view, it's hard to widen the mm. lens because you're like, I am widening the lens while I'm enjoying this delicious Tahitian cocktail that's served, you know, in a mug that looks like a naked hula girl. Like, what's wrong with that? And it's like, well, do you want to be the naked mm-hmm. hula girl? Mm-hmm. Well, they probably would say like, yes. You know, I mean, like, but they don't like, because you know. once their stuff gets made fun of, then they're like, oh. You know, like super bar yeah. about being represented as like yokels and it's like well right it's the same thing yeah but people but people don't like i mean but like you said i mean i'm saying like just widen the lens but like you said it's like it's easy to say that it's but people don't seem to have the ability to do it because it's like people just don't, don't. make that connection they don't. you know it's like the it's like the fuck your feelings people who then like they're they're all in their yeah. feelings all of a sudden when when the tables get they're turned not they're not making that, making that no leap. they're not making that connection and it's and at a certain point you just you have to like yeah. roll your eyes and move on because yeah. it's like they're, they're not, they're not well. so okay I'm gonna go into this next part and then maybe it'll lead to this what I was gonna say um okay so like can we responsibly tiki in 2024? And the answer is like, (laughs) yes, maybe, possibly. Um, Mm -hmm. The New York Times did an article titled Reclaiming the Tiki Bar, which is great. It kind of goes through the history and all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's got illustrations if you're not one to like, if you're not a big reader. But they talked to several industry professionals about how we might reimagine Tiki's contribution to cocktail culture. Cause that's the thing, right? Is that to like, to sit there and to 
put it in a memory hole and to be like, it doesn't exist. It was all bad across the board. We have to like atone for this original sin is to ignore a major part of American cocktail culture. So how do we move forward in a way that we can start to like shed or make reparations for this again, original sin of appropriation and racism. And here are a few of their thoughts. Uh, The first is from Shannon Mustafer. She is author of Tiki, Modern Tropical Cocktails. She's also the first black bartender in 100 years to write a cocktail recipe book, which is pretty fucking cool. Um, She says, quote, it's not about thatch roofs and bamboo or dancing girls. It's about the level of craft and hospitality, the attention to detail. Tiki is a deeply considered, well-executed, high-production-value cocktail experience. So that's those are her thoughts. Mm -hmm. Mariah Kunkel, she is a spirits expert. Um, She is Shamoru. And Black, she's the co-founder of the Pacifica Project, which is a hospitality collective for people of oceanic heritage in the beverage industry, which again is just like cool, you know, that we're – that things Mm. like this are starting to come up so that these conversations could be had. Uh, She says, quote, the region has higher rates of poverty, lack of access to essential services, and more burden from climate change. I just don't think it's necessary to use stereotypes or appropriate cultural elements to transport folks. However, Tiki can lead people to learn about the culture of Pacific Islanders. Mm You'll like this one. Chalky Tom. She's Pomo from California and Paiute from Nevada. She's also the co-founder of Doom Tiki, a pop-up with satanic imagery and metal music that seeks to challenge Tiki's established aesthetic. Quote, there's a beautiful opportunity to use what drew people to the aesthetic to help these communities. Frankly, if you've been profiting off their imagery, it's really time to give back. Kevin Ufre, who is a Dominican-born, Bronx-raised spirits specialist, um, and I think he kind of sums it up best. He said, quote, I think the next education that the consumer is craving is on the sociopolitical and cultural aspect of spirits. If we continue to educate ourselves, it'll invite more conversation, more discourse. I also think it'll bring better drinks. When you learn about these things and understand the complexities, you will want to make better drinks because you'll want to honor what you were doing. And that is the strange and twisty history of tiki culture. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. And and, it seems to me like the drinks themselves aren't really the problem, like the mixology of it. Because you can, you know, the drinks are just drinks, but it's like, you got to be like, and it seems like that's what these new tiki uh, people that you were just quoting at the end are kind of talking about is like, you got to be more thoughtful about, you know, kind of the aesthetic yeah. surroundings and, and how you like approach, you know, what you're doing for the original cultures, but, but the drinks themselves and how you approach the drinks are like, you know, that that's the contribution that like. Right. Tiki and made, I think it's just interesting, you know, you know, like we talk about this so much that it's, it is so interesting to look at something like a cocktail and to be like, well, how the hell did we get here? Like, how did this cocktail mm. in this glass, in this bar with this decor happen? And it's, It's one of those things that like the starting idea 
was not bad, right? Like this idea of like a tropical mm-hmm. paradise in the midst of the fucking Great Depression, that in and of mm-hmm. itself is not bad. It's the thing of like, well, we're going to borrow some from this and we're going to borrow some from this and we're going to take this and we're going to throw Chinese food in here. And, you know, we're going to have a lot of like half naked ladies on the menus and we're going to call it tiki. That that's the stuff that should be examined. Well, it's well, it's the fact that and like when you're talking about mm-hmm. this Vic guy. Um, it's, it's like, there's the, it's when you add the element of grift into it, seems like these original creators, there's, there's a, there's a grifter right in there that like, you know, there may have been some good intentions that were twisted by people who were right because the thing is again is that it's not like i thought this was all nice like i thought it all went together really well it's this thing of like oh these are the things that i found on my travels and this is the stuff that i experienced Mm -hmm. um there was this whole thing about uh the luau how they had these like giant man-eating clams and i mean like where do we draw the line between fantasy and like cultural pillaging right like, at what point mm-hmm. do we go, here's this, like, made-up well, world that we are creating, this, like, fantasy tropical paradise. I mean, this is a problem not to go down, not to create an entirely mm-hmm. new rabbit hole to go down. But maybe this this is actually a story I've thought about doing that maybe I should do in the next few episodes. Because <clears throat> it kind of goes along with uh, this is like this is this is a problem mm-hmm. that pops up in horror fiction a lot is the othering of other cultures and you see this in like everything from king kong uh which like i love king kong i love there's a lot i love about king kong but i mean skull island with the natives and i and think the, that's that like that is that know? gets to the meat of what the issue is is if you were looking at this stuff mm-hmm. and being like oh look at these quaint little like I said, like these quaint little like savage natives. Look at this like un uh I can only think of the word in Spanish, but this like uncultivated people. It just builds a hierarchy, like inherently it builds a hierarchy that is I am better than those people. Well well, it's easy to go from like, you know. Oh, look at this fascinating, exotic thing that is different from my mundane American life to like, it's so fascinating that it's actually like really weird. It's it's so weird that it's actually really alien. It's so alien that it's actually really threatening. It's so threatening that it's actually like really inhuman and should be exterminated. You know, this is the like, this is the progression that unfortunately you actually see happen in like some of the less responsible mm, horror fiction mm-hmm. in horror movies and like even something like King Kong, which is mm-hmm. you know a product of its time, uh, you know, 1932, I think, you know, uh, but you also have in like the the uh Italian cannibal movies of the 70s and like cannibal holocaust right cannibal, yeah that's the thing we're not that stuff. far removed from this stuff well frankly even a movie like arachnophobia is like you know because it's like look how like look at the like 
the Amazon is so dangerous with these evil spiders that right. could end up in California. And like, it, you can take this leap into like, so we should like level the Amazon. Now, is anyone going to watch arachnophobia and actually make that leap? No, but like, but these are things that know, reinforce it, it, like these supremacist right. ideas, right? Like that's how we get and that, and like, that's, people in zoos. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, and that, and that's and that's and that's like I think a thing that like horror writers and academics and and fans and stuff have been talking about for and these have been conversations that have been mm-hmm. happening in the genre for the last, particularly the last couple of decades as people have been thinking a little more deeply about this is like how do yeah. we handle these issues, and like obviously this is like. You know, is this related to tiki culture? I've kind of made a little bit of a leap here, but like you can kind of see that like it's the same. You know, it's it's this is what happens when you fall into that like exoticism, right? And like, and this is the this is the the main issue is that this idea of exotic of exoticism is centered in a wasp power structure. Because nobody is ever going right. to mean like, ooh, the Scandinavians are so exotic. It's always people that are removed from whiteness. You know what I mean? And we see it mm-hmm. and we see the very damaging tropes that come from it. We see the way that black and brown women are over-sexualized. We see the way that Asian women are like sexualized in a completely different way. Because when you do this thing of like, it's, it's, it's that, it's that free fall, right? Of, oh, exotic. Oh, different. Oh, strange. Oh, alien. Oh, dangerous. Mm -hmm. To be fair, in horror fiction, we do tend to like do that (laughs) to the Scandinavians too, but I think it's because they live in these weird wintry climates and stuff, but like, um, but I would love to know if there are parts of Asia where they're like, <gasps> English people, like, you know what I mean? And maybe there are, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's just that like mm-hmm. in the U S well, you do we see have it a very sometimes white centered. I mean, I think you do see it sometimes. I think in Japanese uh, horror fiction, where, where they will do it mm-hmm. to other yeah. Asian cultures, and yeah, stuff, historically, because they have some similar kind of colonialist yeah. history, yeah. you know. So it's like, I mean, the, the, whenever you have that kind of power structure, I think you, you yeah. see these things kind of yeah. So so again, just like yeah. a cool, um, like. A cool thing to find out about to see, you know, like, oh wow, this the like it it is a strange and twisted history of how we got to, you know, drinking it is interesting fruity when, cocktails. It is interesting when you're talking about like the the rebirth of tiki kind of with Mad Men because we did have our own tiki bar here in Albuquerque that mm-hmm. um actually predated Mad Men. It did. Um and then but it, but it was like barely a tiki bar. Well, it yeah, it like had tiki in the name. It was Bert's Tiki Lounge, right? And it right? had some tiki aesthetic to it, but right, they, they they didn't lean too super hard, and it was really much more just kind of a punk rock bar. Well. This is the thing, right? So when I started at the beginning of this, I was really talking about tiki bars and tiki restaurants, but I did mention that it was an entire like arts, music, entertainment. Mm-hmm. And there is, um, hold on just a second. Let me 
let me see if I can find it. Because of course, anything that becomes a culture and anything that becomes like sort of a dominant culture will have subsects to it, mm-hmm. right? I'm like trying to look it up. A subsect of tiki culture is something that became known as it was called the lowbrow movement. Mm. And this was just reading straight from Wikipedia. In California and elsewhere, the re-exploration of rat rod and hot rod culture melded oh. with tiki, tattoo history, and rockabilly music to create new cultural hybrids such as lowbrow that okay. manifested itself in music, art, and a new breed of tiki bars. So I feel like that Burt's was, was Burt's. that. That was yes. Burt's because Burt's was very much like a rockabilly kind of bar. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, because it had like the tiki thing, but it was very wink wink about it. It was very mm-hmm. much a punk rock bar, and it, it had like pinball machines and like it was. Uh-huh. So, so it was. I think it was much more that than it was like yeah. a full on tiki place. Yeah, so it had like some elements of it. This is where we also start getting into like the Suicide Girls and the sort of like yeah. dark kind of. Well, and I'll say like that aspect of it is the part of it that I think I have more appreciation for mm-hmm. because like that whole low i never like thought of it as like i never knew it had like a name but i definitely like i think have an affinity for that <laughs> yeah um but like no that's interesting because yeah that that definitely that definitely kind of feels like that fits much more yeah yeah and i remember when i was like when i was reading this that i was like oh that's birds yeah you know, yeah, I miss birds. I'm trying to remember birds. <laughs> I don't see, I don't, A, I don't see you as being super into the lowbrow thing. And I don't see you as being someone who would have like gone way out of your way to hang out at birds. I know I was we used there. To go to birds a fair yeah. No, I know I went there a couple of times. Um, and I remember walking in here and being like, I almost like this place. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's... you would have been at like the wine bar down the street. No, I like wanted my like. <laughs> I make you sound like a snob. I don't yeah, you are making that. me sound like a snob. Um, <laughs> but I have a very um, there is uh, there is a bar that you and I tried to go to here in town that is a very it is the kind of cocktail bar that I am interested in. It is very Art Deco. Um, mm. the cocktails are expensive, but it's a place to like go and have a drink and have a conversation. And it's like beautifully decorated. Mm. Um, happy accidents is a bar that I'm like, I yeah. like this place. Right. My big thing against Burt's is that every time I went in there, I got a drink spilled on me because it was well, packed. It was, pa- it was also, it was a live music thing, which is yes, not which your is thing. Not at all. It's also why, like, I stopped going to Anodyne here in town because right. I was just like, I got maced in the stairwell, you know, <laughs> like. <laughs> no, it was, but we, we, like, I mean, I'm I'm a little too old for it now, but we were, like, me and Corey and people who, other people who are listening to the podcast don't know, but mm-hmm. um, we were much more into, like, the dive bar scene back in the day. Yeah. And, like, I feel like that's less your scene. <laughs> no, I love a dive bar. I just don't want it. Packed. I don't want to probably go like a anywhere. quiet dive bar. <laughs> I like a quiet dive bar. And yeah. part of it is because I'm short. That makes sense. Like 
packed dive bars where everybody's like shouting and, and the bar is like you. four people. Yes. Like I get smooshed. And that I, makes <laughs> like I'm a giant, so I could just I'm yeah. the one doing the smooshing. So. Yeah, you know what? Check your tall privilege. <laughs> Okay, and understand that we're doing, we're all doing the best we can. Um, <laughs> on that note. <laughs> on that note. <laughs> thank you so much for listening. Let us know how you liked the one story format. And of course, as always, if you've reached this point on Spotify, go ahead and give us a five-star rating. Subscribe, rate, review. All of that stuff helps us like move up in the charts. And, you know, once we start making that mad podcast money, um, we are going to release the Slutty for Satan birth control package. So that is a promise. Um, So do that. Share with your friends. uh, Leave us some comments, uh, you know, when we post this thing. And I don't know, I guess until next time, stay weird, stay curious. uh, And we'll see you in a few weeks. Bye. Bye. So listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing. <laughs>